dramatic pause. <laughs> I was wondering if you like. I feel like I always like. Maybe I see that we're live before you do, or actually, you probably see it before me. But I was always like, let's have let's have Tim say hello first. Yeah. How are you, Zach? Lovely. You? Yep. Life is great. See, we're both wearing our typical black T-shirts, so that's great. And uh, I can't I can't really see if our guest is wearing a black tee today. Probably not, though. I think he's uh, wearing some some promotional swag, which yeah. we always we tell all of our guests that uh, hey, if you want to send a swag, we'll uh, send us swag. Wear swag. We'll do wear the whole it. Thing. Do you remember, do you remember when you um, growing up? Did you enjoy running as a kid? No. Same. Do you remember what your uh, <laughs> were you good running uh, as a kid though? I just didn't. I don't know if I was good or not. I just. Uh, I mean, I. I guess growing up as a kid, man, I, I, I would skateboard everywhere. Like, no kidding. That was like mm -hmm. my mode of transportation. So I would skateboard literally like five miles across town, get to where I was going. Not a bike. Then we would skate and do our thing. And then I would skate all the way back. I mean, I, looking back, I, I bet you I had one foot there or one leg that was like way more muscular than the other. But yeah, that was my mode of transport, that and bike. But I mean, five miles on a skateboard is a pretty long track yeah how about you yeah no hated running sucked at running actually <laughs> looking back you know i think i actually i was decent because i had presidential uh physical fitness awards multiple times you know the presidential national you know how they had that did you have that thing yeah. growing up yeah so you had to hit like some sort of like piece in there um the reason i i ask you this is because i know today's guest has some interest in running i'm not exactly sure what his interest is i've heard these things through the grapevine am i right is it yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, we'll have to touch on that because I remember I saw I saw our guest in like a boot. And I can't remember if when I saw him wearing a boot, if that was like pre-race or post-race. I can't remember which, but I was like, man, he's an animal. A boot? What do you mean by that? Uh, uh, like a, a boot, like a cast leg boot on uh, on his foot. Well, I can explain. <laughs> that, please, that, please. that was post-race. That, that was an adventure challenge that I that I did. And massively destroyed my ankle hmm. welcome graham henshaw so are, how are yeah, you yeah welcome graham thanks good to be here are, are, so are you a runner i mean do you consider yourself a runner is that like your your hobby uh i i run mostly because my wife runs um mm -hmm. she's into longer distance races uh what's long I, marathons okay um i get bored and my body seems to fall apart these days if i try to run anything more than a half I enjoy multi-sport races, so I do triathlons, uh, adventure races, if I'm not tearing up my body uh, too much. Um, yeah, so no no more long-distance races for me. Okay, and, and the story is you have some sort of fitness-related business that you sold at some point? Is that is? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had one. Uh, that was my third at-bat. Uh, so I had, I had two prior, uh, both sort of, in the fitness space. Um, mm -hmm. and the, the first two were, uh, were failures, you know, so we, we had to wind down a kite surfing, uh, business. Uh, this was in the very early days of, of that space. Um, and then the second one was actually a runner ID product. So I was into running then, uh, in those days I lived in Chicago. Chicago is a really big running city. Um, and what I realized was that, you know, I ran without ID quite often. Uh, and so did a lot of the folks that were in our running club. And I just, you know, it struck me that that might not always be safe, but that was a fleeting thought most of the time. Uh, kind of like your military dog tag type of ID? Uh, I didn't run with yeah. anything. And most people didn't run with any form yeah. of ID whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, this is, this is pre, pre iPhone. Like, you right. know, there's, there's none of that. Um, think at the time I had a Palm Pilot. Uh, so, so just to sort of date, date when that idea was. Um, and so Andrew this was, backstage is trying to wonder, he's Googling what a Palm Pilot is. It's an original <laughs> phone. It's an amazing, <laughs> it's like, it's like amazing device, amazing device. Um, yeah. So then we developed, uh, so short codes, short text codes were coming out. So you could like text something to a number and then other, you know, various things would kick off. 
Uh, so we developed a, a thing where you wore a Lance Armstrong style bracelet, silicon bracelet. You had a unique ID. And then if someone found you, they would text that ID to the short code. And then it mm -hmm. would close the loop between your emergency contact person uh, and, and that individual would get information about you, what your name was, if you had any medical issues. Um, I, I so think that the, the equivalent actually, to a microchip on a dog, basically? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. Except it happened all through SMS. Uh, so that was, gosh, that, that was- That uh, didn't work? Early 2000s. It could have. We had a great, great prototype. I think the, the lesson learned on, on that one was- waiting too long we had a an early mvp that worked it did exactly what we we said it needed to do made all those connections so the, the back end worked but we just waited too long to release and ultimately a, a, a another company gosh i think it was called road id came yeah. out with something that was very similar uh, and, and really swept up the market so the, by the time we did there was just not not really enough room for us so that was number two uh wind down but uh, I guess I have that that uh, that trait of grit that we like to have in entrepreneurship. And so number three was a product that helped runners track their pace uh, in long distance races. So Tim, Tim, I know you run a bunch. You probably have a particular pace that you're shooting for. Uh, people who are running marathons want to hit a, a certain time. And there are uh, qualifier times to get into some other races. So it's important to to run at a particular pace. Again, this is still pre-iPhone, uh, just pre-iPhone. And so there were lots of ways that people were using to track their pace. And I, I used all of them as a marathoner back then. Um, but probably the best one was writing in Sharpie marker all over your forearms uh, so that you have, have that information. Um, and that gets a little like what your split the end. would need to be at like a 5k a 10k a 13 mile like where you need to be because it would increase or decrease depending is that yeah exactly so like yeah. mile one you know tim says five minutes 30 seconds <laughs> mile two 11 right like, depending on whatever you are so so 26 numbers all over your all of your mm -hmm. arms and this is what we all did or we used uh tyvek bracelets so like the tyvek house wrap Imagine wearing that on your wrist and having all these numbers printed on it. That was like the best technology out there for how to do that. Um, there, there were at the time GPS watches, but they were like, oh know, yeah, the big the size of a Palm Pilot yeah. on your wrist. <laughs> we're gonna see how many times I can say Palm Pilot today. Um, so, so yeah, so there were some other solutions out there, and I was, I was always frustrated with them throughout every race that I did, but I was just trying to survive. And by the end of the marathon, I've sort of forgotten about the pain point. And then one year I was injured or one race I was injured. So I was just on the sidelines cheering for my wife. And the change of perspective was really, really amazing for me because I saw everybody else struggling with these little fiddly bracelets or their Sharpie markered arms and just not being in the mix, but being on the outside looking in enabled me to really think about it more. And by the end of that race, I came up with the idea for something called Pace Tat, a pacing tattoo. So a really durable, uh, temporary tattoo sort of transfer that you would apply onto your forearm. And that's what runners could use to, to keep track of their pace. So same ideas with the, the Sharpie marker or the Tyvek, uh, but much bigger font. You could see it. It's not going to rub off. Uh, in fact, we had to make it so durable that it wouldn't like sweat off in a, in a marathon or a triathlon when you swim, that it would stay on your arm for, you know, five or six days, uh, which initially we thought like, oh, that's going to be kind of a problem. But runners like the metal that they get right, at the right. end of the race. And what we learned was that runners also sort of wore this as a badge long after the race. And so they're getting coffee at work the next day. It's like, oh, what, what's that? You know, you have your, you have your pace um, tat on your arm. You're like, conversation oh, starter. I the race. That's my um, squid game's number. What's that? It's my squid game number. <laughs> so, so. You guys never watched squid games? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I didn't hear no. the first part though. Oh, oh on you your arm? 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number 144. Um, yeah, so like that uh it was created to solve a problem for runners and it did that really well. It solved that issue that that runners had. Um but it also inadvertently solved a problem that I didn't know existed for big brands that were sponsoring races. So we were initially, we created this to be a direct to consumer uh, business. And we would, we would sell these at races. We would travel around the country and go to the race expos. Um, but pretty quickly, these brands caught on that this product stayed on a runner's arm for a week. Uh, and our first, our first corporate customer was Adidas. Um, and that was for the Chicago marathon. Uh, and so in one order, we, you know, like 10 X our sales to individual runners and also sort of exposed our brand in the process. Uh, so we began really, uh, pushing that customer segment for, for the business. So Adidas was our first shoe company that, that bought in. And so when we did that, obviously we have all the same information that the runner needs with the inclusion of, of the brand. Uh, hmm. And so, so Adidas, is it basically like your normal bib, but whatever the, the partnered by or powered by is, is yeah. somehow the logos on there. Got it. Exactly. Yeah. And so then uh, after that, we had uh, Nike uh, became our, our biggest customer for years after that. And that was that was fantastic uh, to work with them. Also, really nerve wracking um, to be able to put the the swoosh on something requires a lot of uh, jumping through legal hoops. You you cannot mess that up. Uh, hmm. And so that was that was scary when we first did it. But they were a great customer, and they distributed millions of these at races. So they they were already investing a lot of money to be the lead sponsor of of a lot of these races. Uh, and so this was a way to activate the sponsorship and give something to a runner that they actually needed, you know, not another, you know, thing that goes into the goodie bag that just gets thrown away on the way out of the of the expo. This is something that they get and they're going to use it. It's going to be something that was useful to them. And oftentimes they would wear two. So they'd have a fast arm and a slow arm. So they're like really tatted up with the with the Nike. Wow. Brand. Yeah. And so, so we continued that. Uh, sort of branded model to get, you know, this out into the market, into the hands of, of hundreds of thousands of runners. But then we could sell direct. We also sold direct uh, to runners through stores and also direct off of our website. Was, Interesting. Uh, yeah. Any of the uh, the big players, they, they probably wanted the, uh, the tattoo to last longer than five to seven days. The, the big the, brands? Yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. There were conversations about how to, how to make it last longer. Uh, but yeah, about seven days. I mean, if you'd like baby it, you could, you could probably have it stay on longer. Uh, but you, we found that people didn't really want it to stay on much longer than that. They had told all of their race stories by, by the end of the, by the end of the week. Well, yeah, you know what's interesting about that? What's no, interesting about that? Sorry, you go, Tim. Fast forward now. Now you need to come up with a, a, a temporary tattoo to cover the actual tattoos so that you can read the numbers because so many people are inked up now. I know. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, it would, it would probably work for that. Like it had a background on it so that that mm -hmm. was the base to, to then put the numbers to make it really legible. Um, the, the tricky thing, and I, I'm, I'm judging Zach by his facial hair here. If you're really hairy, it, it was a, actually a problem because it goes onto your forearm. Most people don't have, they have hair on this side, but not on their forearm, but like on, on this side, some people are hairy on this side as well. And, and that, uh, that presented problems for some, uh, but yeah, so these, this got to start right at the beginning of those giant GPS watches. They didn't really work all that well. So this was a solution that was just dead simple. Um, it, you know, when I, when I would introduce this back then, like people knew that I, I'm an engineer, I'm a mechanical engineer. At the time I worked at a product development firm working on really complicated products for other companies. And this was dead simple. It just solved the problem in a really elegant but simple way. And that's all it needed to be, right? There, there was no tech behind the scenes. You know, that came later. You know, we did develop an app that, that did something similar when iPhones came out. So we, 
we were among the first running apps that were out in the uh, on the app store. Uh, but still, the the physical product was the one that did much better than than anything else. And we've all worked with many, many founders. And I'm sure that I mean, so it's interesting to me to hear you talk about this. You had a dead simple solution and how often we go back to founders and tell them, just make it simple. You know, I mean, everybody yeah. wants to over engineer, overthink over everything from pitches to product to every yeah, it's. So yeah. that's, that's a perfect example to, to keep things simple. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I, I learned that lesson with the prior failure. We had something that worked for the runner ID product. It worked months before we sort of felt like we were ready to launch. And so this time I made the first batch at home and they were awful. They were so sticky. Uh, I mean, it was just a, a disaster. But I took them to our running club and we, we were a part of the, the biggest running club in, in Chicago. And I gave them out to runners. And uh, by the end of that practice run, everybody was trying to buy the, the disgusting, sticky paste hats. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just that helped me to see that, you know, this is enough. Even even the janky prototype was was something that people were willing to pay for. Uh, and so then we began the process of trying to figure out, like, how do we make this in quantity and, and even more robust and much less sticky. Uh, and so, yeah, it doesn't always have to be complicated if it solves a problem. So stealth mode, you, you your second company, you realized maybe it failed because you were in stealth mode for too long. Third company, see success there because yeah. you get out more in front of it. When you hear companies that are, you know, hiding, hiding behind like crazy, uh, in yeah. stealth mode, if you will. I mean, what, what are your overall thoughts on that? So for the most part, when I hear young entrepreneurs go down that route, it's usually coming from a place of, of misplaced fear that someone else is going to steal my idea. And um, you know, I'm, I'm fast forwarding a bit through my, my career trajectory. But after those startups, I, I did end up in venture capital for a while. And was exposed to hundreds and hundreds of, of startups. And rarely, if ever, did I see a startup that uh, ran into an issue where someone stole their idea, right? So this, this fear of if I tell the world about this, or even a small fraction of the world that uh, you know, someone's going to take it from me, um, I just haven't seen that happen. So most of the time, I think that's misguided uh, because there's a much greater risk, I think, of building something that nobody wants. And those sticky, horrible, you know, done at home paste tats were a way for me to figure out that should I invest anything more than what I already have in this particular solution? So most of the time when I see people operating in, in stealth mode, it's a recipe to spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money on something that might just hit the market and you realize the market doesn't really want it. It's not the right, it's not the right solution. So nine times out of 10, I really advocate get into the market and, and talk to people as early as possible. It reminds me, uh, Zach, listening to this story of back episode 90, we had uh, Alan Lim, uh, the founder of Scratch Labs on uh, the show. And he was talking about his start where they first, when he first started making his hydra, uh, hydration mix, he knew that there, there was a, a hardware store that if you bought a five gallon bucket of paint, that they would give you free shaking for life. So they would put the <laughs> hydration mix in a five gallon bucket and they would take it there to do all the mixing for him for free. Uh, but then eventually he was sharing all that with his friends. And then every more and more and more people wanted to, uh, to purchase his mix. So, uh, mm. Similar, similar story that was that was fun to listen to uh, from his point of view. So maybe yeah. everyone should listen to fitness related entrepreneurs and how they made made it work, because it seems <laughs> like they're pretty <laughs> two for two now, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be all that all that complicated. I think that was my one of my big takeaways from that venture is like number one and most important that I've kept with me forever is what problem is your venture solving? And, you know, in my days at, at New Richmond Ventures, now NRV, that's the first question I ask people. Mm -hmm. Who's your customer? What problem are you solving for them? And, and how quickly do they need to articulate that? 
fast, like right away. Yeah. They need to like, thir- like an elevator pitch 30 seconds less type of thing. Like really, really no, quick. Like I need to be able to see in their eyes that right away they know who the customer is. And I can mm-hmm. tell if they hesitate at all. I know that they don't really know. I, I need to know that that they could differentiate. Zach, you're my customer. And Tim, you're not my customer because of something really specific. Thicker and then answer. like, what is the need that you have? You need to be able to articulate that really, really fast. Just on the, and I'm not talking about a pitch. I, I don't want that either. Uh, right. Really there, I'm looking for a passion around meeting that need. And then after that, like the idea is sort of secondary. If it's really early, I already know the idea is probably going to go through 10 more iterations before it's right. But if the, the customer and the need are compelling, then that's worth, that's worth chasing down. And, you know, with, with Pastat, there were so many runners, the running industry had never seen a down year, right? When, when the economy goes tanks, running goes up, right? Running is, is something that like everybody can get into. It doesn't require a lot of equipment. So it turned out to be a, you know, a really great space to be in. I'd love to say that I did all the market research to, to uncover that before I got into it, but I, but I didn't, right? I just met a, a need that I had that a lot of other people had, and that was enough. Uh, and, and that was a, that was a fun ride. We had lots of, lots of learning experiences. It was great to work with big brands. I, I enjoyed that a lot cause that, that sold a lot of volume. Uh, but I loved connecting with individual runners. So we kept going to the, to the expos, even all throughout the entire journey, uh, to meet runners and to get the stories of like, Hey, Paystat helped me hit my Boston qualifier time. Like that was, cool. that was really fun. Yeah. What, what, cool. what, end, what happened? What's the end of that story? So we, um, we had a great business with the brands like that could have, that could have been like bread and butter and it, and it was, uh, but gosh, it was probably 2000 would have been like 2008 or so. Um, all of a sudden, like we we were operating the business. I, I went into work and our, our website was broken and I check the back, the back end. Um, and I'm looking at our order fulfillment, um, component of the website and I'm like, oh man, there's like, there's an error here, uh, because there's like a hundred X, the number of orders that should be in the, uh, in the system. And, uh, and so I'm like troubleshooting that. And then I realized like, it's actually real it's not, there's not an error. There is a hundred X, what should be in the system at that moment. Uh, but what happened was that, uh, runner's world, the, the, the magazine and website had put out on their homepage, like without even talking to us, without even reaching out, put an image of the pace tap. And, and this was like a full page on their homepage, best period idea period ever period. And then a link to our site. <laughs> and I'm like, heads up would have been really nice because I don't know how many orders we missed because um, it just crashed. It crashed our, our website. Uh, and then they wrote a, a, an article on us. Actually, I keep it. I, keep I, I was going to ask us. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and that, you know, that came out and that just really elevated our direct to consumer uh uh, segment and so that that channel was one that previously took a lot of effort. Like going to an expo uh, is is tough. It takes it takes uh, time, and so we would do that and like had teams of people going places. But being able to sell direct straight off the website for a product that you can fit in an envelope, like that was really where it was at, and and that that really helped us elevate the the whole business. And right around that time, one of the other, there's another vendor that worked with Nike and with Adidas. We are all sort of in this small circle that would go to all of the big races. And often we would have a booth next to this other, this other vendor. Uh, and we just got to talking and uh, I could tell that they were acquisitive. They had bought a couple of other companies uh, that had products. They they were called Sporting Innovations Group. So they had like this portfolio of things that they they wanted to to sell to runners and other athletes. 
And, uh, and so we chatted uh, at, I forget what, what race it was. And, and it seemed like there was interest there. There was interest for me as well, uh, because I didn't set out to just be in that space. Um, like I said, I was solving a problem for me. Turned out a lot of other people had it, but I, but that wasn't, that wasn't a space that I was really passionate about being in. And so the discussion of, of acquisition was attractive. Um, and so we, we talked about it. It seemed like we were, we were going to get pretty close. And, you know, this is a story probably that is repeated by a lot of entrepreneurs. The acquisition that ended up happening there took way longer uh, than I initially, initially thought uh, it would take. And it also necessitated that I walked away from the deal. Uh, so we mm. worked on it for, for more than a year. Uh, and at one point, we just could not agree to the terms. And I had to, I had to walk. And so I, I walked away from it, uh, which was, which was really hard. Uh, but, you know, I learned in that whole process to listen to the advisors. So we had a board that um, made recommendations and I learned earlier to listen to those recommendations, even when I feel like I want to do something different. And, and so in that moment, I still wanted to, we could work out those terms. There were just a few things. Um, but the recommendation was to walk away. So I did fully like we're done. We gave it our best effort. We're not gonna, we're not gonna get it done. Uh, and then a week later, magically those sticky terms like actually worked out. Uh, and, and it turned out those were pretty important because those were, uh, continued to be sort of payouts on whatever, uh, more revenue they were able to generate in some of those other more lucrative channels. Uh, so it was worth walking away. Um, but it took, it took more than a year. I remember it was at the, uh, it was at a marathon in DC where we shook hands and we said we were going to do it. It was, it was 13 months later that we actually did it. Um, but you know, I was, I was so naive because I remember that handshake back then I'm already like planning the vacation. Um, and then, (laughs) and then it was like, Oh no, like we're going to, like there's, there's a bunch of legal stuff and we're going to get attorneys involved. And then, you know, the whole walk away thing happened. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a roller coaster. It's so, real quick. I mean, and I want to transition to your time at William and Mary, but with, yeah. when you have a deal that's penciled like that. So I, mean, I immediately start thinking of Twitter, Elon Musk. So, I mean, like this, the deal that you have outlined is based on revenues. So like for, this is 13 months that you got to continue to grind Yep. I would assume maintain those numbers, if not increase those numbers so that you can yeah. maintain the value of the company. Is that yeah. the case? Increase. Yeah, had to. Um, and, and that was tough initially. Cause like I said, in, in, in my naivete, like I had already, I planned my exit after the handshake and then to realize, no, 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 we have to still run this for however long it takes to get through this deal. Uh, that was, that was challenging. Um, wow. And so, you know, that's, you know, that's something that was, that I wasn't prepared for in that moment. Uh, and I think, you know, if that comes again, um, you know what to expect, but I, you know, I had never, I had never been down that road before. And, you know, I let myself sort of feel like, all right, the end is in sight, but we had to keep hammering on the accelerator throughout that entire period. And especially when we walked, because then it was like, we're going to make this thing as big as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was, a that was a really amazing experience. Did finally get that vacation, but it came more than a year later, <laughs> but, uh, and that led to some other really cool things, uh, down the road that, uh, that have been an absolute joy to be able to work with other entrepreneurs and help them experience some of that as well. Yeah. And you're doing that with your involvement with William and Mary, I mean, you really, uh, I mean, gosh, you've, you've made, I mean, you've built that to significant levels. I mean, you talk, can you share with us in terms of yeah, William and Mary, what your involvement is, where you started, where you're at today? Yeah. Uh, so I guess accidental is sort of how I got here. Um, I, I think I said yes one too many times to some guest lecture opportunities. Uh, but I really loved those experiences. So there are a couple of faculty that I um, met early on in the business school, and they were starting to work on uh, incorporating more innovation into the curriculum. And 
I was really compelled by the mission that was driving them. They, they had observed that students were coming in, were, were brilliant, and, and they had been. They had been really smart getting into that program for a long time. But there were three things that were, that were bugging a, a small group of faculty. One was um, they, were, they were used to problems that were very well-defined, that were, you know, there was no ambiguity. And in fact, what they observed was when there was ambiguity, students typically um, shied away from those types of challenges. So afraid of ambiguity. Uh, the other was that they uh, felt like there was supposed to be a right answer. Uh, and, mm. and if you think about really well-defined challenges, frequently there is a, a right answer to those, but challenges that we all encounter in the real world are typically ambiguous and don't have a right answer. They have answers and some of them are better than others. Uh, so that was the second thing. And the third was that they were uh, afraid of failure that uh, were, you know, whereas they shied away from ambiguity, they ran away from failure. They did not want to encounter that. And for many of them, as they went through high school, they hadn't failed at anything. That's how mm -hmm. they got into William and Mary. Uh, but this was really not sitting well with this, this collection of faculty. And so one of the thoughts was, can we bring in some innovation, so a, a methodology called design thinking that is typically used in design firms for product development, but increasingly it, it's used for a lot of other things. And so there was, a, there was a hypothesis, right? There was an idea that we could teach design thinking to business school students and it would move the needle on those three issues. And so we, we crafted a, an MVP. We, we didn't call it that, but we, we got a, a course on the books over the summer and we tested out these, these theories about whether or not design thinking would help address this issue of, of uh, a lack of comfort with ambiguity, looking for the right answer and, and recognizing that failure is actually a part of a process towards breakthrough solutions. And that experimental course just sucked me in. I, I really loved that experience of working with students, of working with other brilliant faculty members. Um, and that course then has sort of led into this, this movement first of building out innovation in the School of Business and then helping to grow the Entrepreneurship Center uh, that was actually started in 2010. So Alan Miller made a contribution. Uh, he's a healthcare entrepreneur uh, uh, from Philadelphia, and, and he made a gift in 2010 to start the center um, but I joined in, in 2015 to sort of take it from where the original, uh, the founding, founding directors had gotten it to and, and grow it sort of in parallel with this innovation movement. Is that, just out of curiosity, is that uh, the Design Studios classroom uh, that's tucked away in uh, Miller Hall? Is that still there? It is, it is. And so that course that we taught that summer, we actually taught it in that space, but it was a storage room at that time. And so... <laughs> They, they used to store, you know, spare chairs and tables. And so we just pushed them out of the way because we, we realized we can't run this experiment from a traditional classroom because students typically are, are used to a faculty member teaching at them, right? And I'm just going to listen as the student and then I'm going to try to then apply that down the road at some point. And we, we recognize pretty early, like we can't, we can't teach that way. We're going to have to very quickly have students realize this is not a traditional classroom. It's not a traditional business uh, course. And so we taught it and they learn differently. And so rather than there's not even a front of the classroom. And back then there, there wasn't anything. There was just stuff. Um, and we, we grabbed chairs and sat in a circle and we sort of consider ourselves more facilitators than professors. And you learn something and you apply it in the same day, sometimes in the same breath, right? And you learn it before you really even know how to apply it. But in design thinking, we talk about like building to think, right? Where like the act of building a prototype helps us learn something about it rather than like, I'm going to get everything perfectly set in my head. I'm going to do all the research and then I'm going to build the thing. This says, no, no, build build first and it'll help you figure something out. Uh, and so that that space 
was the was the origination of that experiment. Uh, and then Jim Ucrop and the Ucrop family funded uh, the build out of what is now the the Ucrop Design Studio. That's a really cool, flexible space, um, giant whiteboard and lots of movable tables and chairs. And that informed the build out of two other spaces that I've been really fortunate to, to be a part of uh, at William & Mary. But that was the beginning of it for me. It was just, I was in venture at the time. So I was working in, at, in Richmond uh, with New Richmond Ventures, but I was coming down, or I, I lived here. Uh, so I was going up to Richmond, but I was doing guest lecture stuff on the side. Yeah, and that's, and, and then that would uh, that was a successful experiment, and then you opened up uh, the entrepreneurship center that was also tucked away in the business school. Yeah, that, uh, and then that became really successful. I'll let you touch on this as well. That that led to the entrepreneurship hub, but you know, slowly over time, you had successful experiments, and then more and more business non-business school students became interested in entrepreneurship, which promoted yeah. the growth. So touch on, touch on that uh, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So um, I've never, this is the, the most public forum I've shared this in. So hopefully it's not a mistake, but um, <laughs> when I, when I started at William and Mary, I was loving my job in Richmond as a venture capitalist. I had had no intention of leaving that. Uh, I really loved working with founders and helping them grow. Um, but, but I also loved uh, teaching and, and I loved the idea of building something um, that, that had some initial momentum, but I'm a maximizer. So I love to sort of see the potential and then maximize it. And there was, I could see that at William and Mary. But when I started, um, I felt like in the first sort of few months, I just tried to fully sort of acclimate and sort of be a, what I thought was the faculty member I was supposed to be. And I thought I made a mistake in the early months. I actually kept my old email address at New Richmond Ventures. Um, and I was forwarding my email, my women Mary email to New Richmond Ventures. Cause I just thought, well, if this doesn't work out, at least I, I still have my email all figured out and, and I can just cut off the, the forward. And, you know, I was, I was running into all kinds of red tape. We were trying to grow this thing, but, um, but I couldn't, it, it just wasn't, I wasn't able to realize that potential that I saw, but it was, uh, a, a friend actually came down who's also in the venture space. And I was telling him about, you know, yet another time that I'd gotten in trouble for, for trying something uh, and I, I didn't go through the right channels. And, um, you know, he encouraged me to think about those, those moments as, as, a, as a KPI, that I should be looking for those hand slaps, not, not high fives on this side, but, but on this side as indicators that I'm actually pushing hard enough. And, and in, in that conversation and sort of the week after I realized I'm an entrepreneur, I need to be an entrepreneur in this setting. That's actually what they hired me to do. And so then we started doing what I knew how to do, craft smaller experiments, run them without asking for permission, um, you know, understanding what the rules are and going right up, right up to those. Um, and then through sort of successively larger experiments, that's when you then go and get buy-in. Um, and ever since I sort of remembered, oh yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going, going to do this in an entrepreneurial way. It's been a whole lot of fun and we've grown like crazy. Uh, so back yeah. then when I started, it was only MBA students. There's a handful of MBA students that, that engaged with the programming. And you fast forward to today and we have students from over 50 different majors. We engage with over a thousand students uh, that come from majors that I didn't even know existed. Uh, but that was through uh, lots and lots of little experiments. Lots of them didn't work. And then a few of them did. And then you double down on those. But that's being entrepreneurial about the way we've built this program. Uh, and so it, it, it has been an absolute blast to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, just to set the stage for those that aren't familiar with William & Mary, it's, it's the second oldest institution only to Harvard. 
It's produced more presidents than any other college or university. Yep. Uh, you know, so, I mean, it's it's a very storied and traditional. I mean, it's just it's been doing it the same way for over 400 years. So, I yep. mean, to, end, to bring change to something like that is, uh, yeah, that must have been somewhat stressful at times. Yeah. And I think it's just it, it was important to um, realize the importance of mindset. Right. Entrepreneurial mindset and and um and just being true to who, who you are. And I, again, like I, when I joined, I felt like I had this, this conception and really it was a misconception of what a faculty member is supposed to, supposed to be. Um, and, and I was wrong about that, uh, but it took me, you know, some time to figure out, you know, how to, how to be in this environment. And then also, you know, how to figure out how the system works. Um, because you're right, we you know we have produced more presidents than most other institutions, but we also have a really rich history of developing entrepreneurs. But William and Mary's not known for that, so right. it took sort of discovering that side of this great institution as well to realize this. There's a place for this here also, and we're going to do a better job telling that story. So, so that's tapping into that. It's interesting that you said that because I didn't know that. There's three of them, Jefferson, Monroe, and John Tyler. I had no idea from the president perspective. From an entrepreneur perspective, um, I probably also don't know that, right? I think of uh, there are certain schools that have produced some some pretty big companies uh, yeah. or some pretty big entrepreneurs and stuff like that. But William & Mary not being that, how do you get ahead of that and use that to your advantage to start promoting it? Because I think that's, a, I think that's something, the promotion or um, the... No, just the promotion of any business. I think a lot of people think that they don't have to do a lot of it. Well, that means yeah. a lot I'll of times they don't have quick. the assets that you do either. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, to Graham's yeah. credit, and I'll say, I'll, I'll tee this up for you so that you can start thinking. But one of the things that Graham did at the Entrepreneurship Center is he, like the stickers that are over his shoulder. Um, for those that are listening, they're like three by three, four by four stickers. And what, what Graham did is he, had some students do some research and put uh, and find all the founders of different uh, startups and uh, got the logos and put stickers on the wall of all the different founders that uh, came from William and Mary. And, uh, you know, and so, I mean, like from a data standpoint, that's huge data, but then any visitor that comes into the space, you can say, Hey, here's, here's exhibit a of all the different right. founders that we've had so like some of the it's, it's a really really impressive list in terms of uh founders that came from william and mary and, and graham if you can touch on a couple of those yeah. it's uh, hulu is one that comes to mind yeah so uh hulu is beth comstock uh, so she's a grad uh, another one that that comes to mind is yancey strickler uh he was one of the founders of kickstarter there are literally hundreds um, we, we initially, you know, did some, as, as you said, we did some student research and we uncovered without much effort, probably close to 200. And then since we've, we've partnered with other folks on campus to, to uncover a list that is, I think now it approaches four or 500. Um, and, and we just, we haven't really told that story. We still can do even better. As Tim mentioned, when you walk into our new space, that is, that is a feature wall. So you see that immediately when you walk into the space. And we, we do that for two reasons. One, to try to address that, that story issue. We wanna tell that story um, better. And so you can see now it's a digital wall uh, because we have so many, we, we ran out of room to put the stickers. Uh, and so we made it, uh, so it rotates through all of the different founders and companies. But if you look at them while they're displayed, you also see the major of the founder. And what you quickly see as you look at several of them is that they come from across the whole campus, that this way of thinking, entrepreneurial thinking is something that anybody can learn, anybody can apply it on what they're, what they're passionate about and then create a more meaningful outcome, right? We think this set of tools helps people make more meaningful progress on endeavors they care about and you see that on this wall. Uh, you see hundreds of people who hopefully our students recognize or, or think like, hey, that could be me. I could get on the wall. And found and alumni love it. They loved it when we gave them a little sticker to put on the wall. And they love coming back and seeing it uh, in the digital display as well. Um, but to your point, Zach, like telling that story 
is a critical piece. And that's something that I got wrong early in my tenure here. I thought like, hey, we'll just let this, this work speak for itself. But you have to tell the story. You have to get the word out that this is happening because not everybody is listening all the time. Uh, and so, you know, I'm thankful that someone pulled me aside early on in the first few years and said, hey, you're doing amazing stuff, but nobody knows about it except the people who are, you know, involved in that circle. You've got to do a better job telling the story. And so I started you know, getting the word out. That's as important as anything we've done is telling the story. To as well, many I mean, that's people as that's the can. runner's world story, right? Like somehow someone told your story to get to runner's world to see that hundred X growth, which ended up getting you acquired. I mean, yeah. that, that's the thing. It, ha it has to happen. I think oftentimes people are like, Oh, word of mouth, uh, word of mouth is how I grow my business. Well, if you can help put some like pen yeah. to paper on that and help accelerate that word of mouth, like, that's important. I think most people are terrified of self-promotion or they think it's not going to happen or there's no way that they're actually promoting or marketing uh, the brand that they're associated with. Like it's important and you got to constantly, constantly, constantly do it. Yeah. I wish I would have learned that lesson sooner. Right. Because that that has propelled our growth in a lot of ways. And so there were a few years where we were doing awesome stuff yeah. and no one knew about it. Uh, so, so telling that story early, I think is critical. Yeah, it's uh, man, it's frustrating to me, especially when I'm, it's like, hey, the, the bane of my existence is to help. I want to promote you and your business as much as I possibly can. And they're like, oh, I'm a founder. I'm way too busy. It's just like, I just need just give me a few lines to work with. Give me your yeah. give me your social media handles. Give me your logo. That's that's actually something that is that I could use, not a, a copy paste job that's going to get pixelated when yeah. I uh, make the image bigger. But it's yeah. just like little tiny things and, and then to hear that that's one of the lessons that you wish you would have learned or earlier i wish that everybody would understand that totally yeah and, and it's it's a portfolio approach there right like the swag that i'm wearing like that's a part of it we want this swag out on the campus as well and um yeah i remember that we gave we give uh, the t-shirts i have the t-shirt on underneath this uh to everybody who gets engaged with the entrepreneurship center um, and so we, we have a lot of these t-shirts sort of out and about. And one of the students who was uh, running, helping run our operations uh, was out and about and just overheard a conversation based on the fact that someone saw someone wearing the Entrepreneurship Center t-shirt and was like, hey, you should go. They have this great event on Friday. And, and the t-shirt helped stimulate that conversation. Uh, so like you have to you have to have all these channels open and actively investing into them. Um, but gosh, it took me three years to, to learn that or more. Um, well, especially when you look at how strong the alumni network is. I mean, if you wear a William and Mary or West Virginia or what, pick a place shirt and you're on an airplane sitting somewhere, yeah. you're, you're going to run into someone at the airport that is an alumni or that, that it's a conversation starter within itself. That's how I got my first job out of college. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, the only job I've ever had, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was a guy. I was like, "Oh, you, I have ties to West. I have ties to Morgantown." Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Cool. Yes, all that uh, money was worth it. <laughs> how do you? How do you work? So, it, how do you work with students? They they come to you. They want to start a venture, but then it comes time for graduation. I'm sure that's got to be a really really difficult decision point for them in terms of do I go after a job that it's guaranteed income or do I yeah. follow my dreams as a founder to, to really make a go of this? You know, what, what, how do you, how do you balance that? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I think uh, I'll, I'll add a little bit to what you said. Um, we, we don't exist primarily to help people launch ventures. Um, you know, that is, that is one of the ways that we can, mm. we can help that we can, we can actually achieve our primary mission, which is to equip students with the skills and the mindset of entrepreneurs, right? So that's our number one goal is to get as many people on this campus to adopt that way of thinking and to have a toolkit that entrepreneurs typically have, right? And, and entrepreneurs can use that to build ventures. And, and that's a traditional use of an entrepreneurial toolkit. But again, I'll, I'll say what I said a little bit earlier. We believe and we've seen that 
armed with an entrepreneurial toolkit, folks can make more meaningful progress on whatever they're working on. Whatever mm -hmm. endeavor that they care a lot about, they can actually make more progress, more meaningful progress than if they didn't have that entrepreneurial toolkit, right? The ability to pivot, right? To improvise when you need to. That's essential in, in venture creation, but it's also increasingly essential in so many other settings, including getting a job. Right. So oftentimes my encouragement to students is actually, hey, get, take that great job offer. And, and it surprises them initially because they, they think like, hey, I'm a founder, I was an investor, like um, I, I would encourage them to go the route of doing the venture. Uh, it is a very, a very few times I've, I've actually recommended that. And more often than not, I recommend get that awesome job. Your toolkit helped you land that role and you're going to do better there because you have it. Get that experience under your belt. And then from that vantage point, you might identify something even more meaningful to address. And you'll be able to answer that question. Who's your customer and what problem are you solving? Right. And the stability of a salary going through that. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think that's maybe advice that they don't expect. But I think it's really important because our our number one outcome is not ventures. We're not We're not just trying to launch as many ventures as possible through here. We're trying to equip entrepreneurial thinkers. And, and one outcome is ventures, but it might not always be. It might be that they, they land a really awesome job and then they kick butt in that job because they, they have that toolkit. Right. Yeah. I, I tell so many students, whether if it's high school or college uh, level students, it's like going and being able to go into a job, identifying problems is super, super easy. And if all you're going to do is go into a job and identify problems to your boss, your boss is going to quickly become annoyed because all you're doing is creating work for your boss. Yeah. Uh, but if you can go to your boss and you can say, hey, I've identified a problem because I can think like an entrepreneur, I've developed what the solutions are. I've done the customer discovery. I, you know, I, I have a, a, a solution that's ready to be implemented. Now you've added value to your teams uh, and to your business and to your boss. Really, really important skills to learn. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, you know, we've talked about the alumni founder wall that is prominent in our new space right next to it are the skills and the mindsets of entrepreneurs, right? These are the pillars of entrepreneurial thinking that are the focus of, of the center. And there has never been a time that an employer has, has walked through our space and not said, if you have graduates with those skills and that mindset, we want them, right? Um, it doesn't matter what industry they come from or what level, everybody recognizes the importance and, and sort of, I think, how essential uh, those entrepreneurial skills are today. And I, I think the pandemic really helped solidify that, that even industries that were pretty steady state realized, nope, we have to improvise now. Uh, and in order to do that, we've got to collaborate uh, and we have to craft small experiment, experiments to figure out what works and what doesn't. All of those things are in an entrepreneurial toolkit. Uh, so, so that's been our, our primary focus. And so for us, ventures, while students are here, are means to that end, right? The venture is not the, not the primary end goal. It's that they develop that ability to, to apply entrepreneurial thinking. And, and if you've got a venture, you're going you're gonna to try really hard to make that work. But that helps you learn those things even more because you have something to apply it to. How, how important are you to this role? I, I often, I think about people who might be in your role who don't have that entrepreneurial thinking, who haven't gone through a venture in the same way that mm. you have. Is, is, that, is that role that you're in teachable to someone who hasn't lived it or because you've actually lived it, it makes it so that it actually works? I'd like to think I'm increasingly less important to the, to the execution of the model. Um, before we got on the call, I was looking at our playbook. So we've got a, a Miller Center playbook that in, in excruciating detail talks about every single part of our value proposition, all of our programs, all of our events, and how to, how to operate them, has coaching guidelines for our mentor network. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one member of a, of a team here that that does this. And we've uniquely done a lot of 
what we have over the last five years with a student engine at the core. We have a, a, a core of what we call Miller Center Fellows and other student workers that support all of this work. And, and they are the ones that deliver uh, the content and the value. So if you come to a, uh, to a program, it's not me up front. It'll be one of the student leaders up there uh, delivering whatever it is, or it'll be a, a student who's interviewing one of those alumni founders who's on the wall. And that alumni founder is then delivering that, that same wisdom. Um, you know, that's in the, in the context of the Miller Center. Um, I think I'm a little more important in the classroom because I'm the instructor of record. So I have to be there. Uh, but, but with Miller Center stuff, um, I, I hope increasingly less and less visible and important. What's the best way for uh, folks from, that are not part of the student body to get involved? Yeah. So this is a, a really cool uh, part of our trajectory. So I mentioned when I started in 2015, it was only business school uh, MBA students, and now you know as we as we grew and we've we've moved across campus, we have students from all different majors. We have faculty, we have staff. We we partner with really amazing labs on campus that are led by uh, researchers. But now, uh, since gosh, I think it's been almost two years, we also include sort of in our in our customer segment regional entrepreneurs. And that was uh, due to uh, a partnership with Williamsburg, James City County and York counties to uh, operate the Launchpad Venture Incubator, Tim, that, that you ran for many years. Uh, and so we, we now have a way to reach into the regional entrepreneurial community. And instead of recreating other resources for that audience, we just said, let's use the same resources. The, the content that we've created, the programs, the mentor network, those, are, those should be the same for whether you're a student or whether you're a regional entrepreneur working on this business that's your livelihood. And so we just blurred the lines and we put them all together in this really cool space where you can be a founder and a student working uh, side by side. That's been a really cool transition for us. What... Um... Where do you see the future? Where, where, uh, where you, you, you've had all these plans and experiments. What's, uh, yeah. what's next up on the docket? I, I've been thinking a lot about that, um, particularly this summer, uh, working with um, some alumni who have been really helpful to, to think through that very question. And the vision of the Entrepreneurship Center up to this point is that William & Mary would be recognized for its entrepreneurial thinkers. And, and I think we've been meeting that. Increasingly, I think we are recognized for that. Where we want to go is that we're not only recognized for, for being entrepreneurial thinkers, but for applying that toolkit towards problems that really matter, right? There are some, some problems that we think entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial toolkit will help move the needle on some of those solutions. So the next chapter is going to be, uh, all about the application of mm -hmm. these uh, of this toolkit, and each year, and, and maybe this will be for a season. We'll identify several themes that are related to to challenges like climate adaptation. Right? Mm -hmm. If you just take that, there are a number of very specific problems that we can just tee up. We put them in front of our audience and say, "Okay, we're going to learn about crafting small experiments." But rather than just think about it in a vacuum or whatever problem you can think of on the moment, we're going to give some problems that are very important that we all need to be thinking about. And that's going to be where we're aiming entrepreneurship uh, throughout, the, throughout the year. So I think the next chapter is about specific application, uh, climate change. There, there are other things like that that we really want to uh, address where we think that entrepreneurial thinking can make a difference. Well, I think that that's, yeah, I think that's fascinating. One, in the sense of you, you have to listen to your customer. And in this case, the, the students are the customer. Yeah. But the, the other thing, and the students, that's things, those are things that are really, really important to the students. So students want to make a difference. 
Uh, you know, and it's not about landing a job at Facebook where you can increase uh, click through rates for advertising or, you know, whatever the case is. I mean, they want to do really meaningful, impactful things. So that's that's cool to hear. They do. Yeah. This audience cares about that. They want to do that right away. And we think we can do that with with several sort of big challenges like that. Uh, we think that we can engage with pretty much anybody on campus who wants to wants to have an impact. Is there anything we haven't talked about today that you want to talk about? Oh, gosh. I'm glad you asked that question, right? Because um, that's really what I wanted to make sure that uh, people understand is it's about the fact that like this stuff can really make an impact. I think sometimes we get um, swept up in the in the specific ventures. Um, but when you think about entrepreneurship as a tool to address challenges that, that face society, I get really excited about that. And so that's where we want to begin. And I think we're going to start to see lots of different possible solutions, or at least we're just increasing people's awareness uh, that you can think about those problems and design solutions uh, in an iterative way that'll involve a lot of ambiguity. It's probably going to involve failure and there's not a right answer, but this is a toolkit that can help you navigate that, that scenario because we have to. Uh, so that's, uh, that's really what I want people to know. That's where we're going. That's awesome. Well, Graham, I appreciate your time. It's been a uh, great catching up and uh, taking a little trip down memory lane, but also getting a little uh, yeah. insight into the future. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Cheers. So long, everybody. Thanks for joining.